You're listening to Hello Movies, a podcast to get you off the couch and into the theater. I'm Lana Gay. This week, we take a look at The Lion King. Can you feel the love tonight? I find out exactly what you can expect from seeing a movie in 4DX. Some trivia about movies Quentin Tarantino turned down. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I break your concentration? And get the latest from Tanner Zipchin about what's in theaters this week. But first, let's dig into the inspiration behind a movie that's got everyone talking. So, Rick, uh, explain to the audience exactly what it is a stunt double does. Actors are required to do a a lot of dangerous stuff. (laughs) Cliff here is meant to help carry the load. Is that uh, how you describe your job, Cliff? What, carrying his load? Yeah, it's about right. A movie that's got everyone buzzing like crazy is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It's written and directed by Quentin Tarantino. He spent five years trying to write it as a novel before turning it into a screenplay. The movie takes place in Hollywood in 1969, and Tarantino recently told Esquire magazine that this is probably his most personal film. He said, quote, Alfonso Cuaron had Roma and Mexico City 1970. I had L.A. and 1969. This is the year that formed me. Unquote. The film features Leonardo DiCaprio as a TV star whose career is fading and Brad Pitt as his stunt double. The two end up colliding with actress Sharon Tate, played by Margot Robbie. Here I am, flat on my ass. Who, who I got living next door to me? I'm Sharon Tate. I'm in the movie. You're in this? That's me. I play Miss Carlson, the klutz. If you know your Hollywood history, you know that living next door to Sharon Tate in 1969 will crash them right into the world of cult leader and killer Charles Manson. Tarantino told Cineplex magazine via phone from Cannes that finding this story wasn't a straightforward journey for him. His childhood memories of the Manson murders started with a completely different serial killer. Someone he called the hammer guy. This guy in Los Angeles who was killing people with a hammer. And something about it as a six-year-old that you could understand. And so that kind of grabbed my fascination. So I was actually, you know, like, I remember asking my father, hey, have they got that hammer guy yet? And so I'd like watch the news a little bit about the hammer guy and ask my dad about the hammer guy. And then, he said, they caught the hammer guy. That's when young Tarantino started hearing about another killer, Charles Manson. Growing up in California, the story of the Manson family murders became part of his personal history. You can't not know about it and learn about him. And little by little by little have the the folklore seep into your consciousness if you live around the town that they traipsed around. Then there's the other part of this story, the fading star and his stuntman buddy. Tarantino was inspired by a real-life actor he worked with years ago who had a go-to stunt double. Tarantino agreed to hire the stunt double. And once they were all on set, one thing became very obvious very quickly. The stunt double guy for this one day he worked, he wasn't working for me. (laughs) He was working for the actor. (laughs) He kind of made it clear that that was the deal, which again, I thought that was interesting. So I just kind of watched them sit in their director's chairs talking to each other and go, That is an interesting relationship. That is a story there. One of these days, if I ever do a movie about Hollywood, that could be the way into it. He finally pulled these stories together after holding on to the idea for years. 
As if the actors we already listed weren't enough, the film also stars Al Pacino, Kurt Russell, Timothy Oliphant, Dakota Fanning, and Damian Lewis, plus Luke Perry in his final role. There's even a brief appearance from Jack Nicholson in his first movie role in almost a decade. So we've got big Hollywood names, plus a look at a very memorable slice of California history that brings with it the bonus of Leonardo DiCaprio's dance moves. As to why Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is worth seeing on the big screen, Tarantino has his reasons. Remember, this is a guy who cares about movies and movie theaters a lot. In 2007, he saved the historic New Beverly Cinema in L.A. from redevelopment, explaining that he'd been going there since he was old enough to drive. So take his word for it when he says, you should see the movie in a theater. I kind of consider myself, as far as my relationship to the audience is concerned, is... I am a conductor, and the audience is my orchestra. And I'm, I'm trying to get the audience to respond, audibly respond, to move in their seat, whether they're, like, bopping their head to a groovy song, or they're recalling in horror, or they're leaning forward in their seat because it's suspenseful and they want to know what's going to happen next, or you have that moment and there's a release and you laugh, and then you look at your friend next to you and you share that little moment together and you go back into the movie... And I think the only way to truly get that experience is in a communal, a communal situation. You can read more about Quentin Tarantino in the July issue of Cineplex magazine in theaters now or online at cineplex.com slash magazine. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood opens across the country on July 26th. Quentin Tarantino is not only an auteur filmmaker, he's also a pretty fascinating character. There are so many fun facts to explore about this guy that it could keep us busy for days. Here are just a few random examples. At age 16, he got a job as an usher at a porno theater called The Pussycat. And yes, he lied about his age to get it. He's thanked in the liner notes of Nirvana's classic album In Utero, although his name is misspelled. He's directed episodes of ER and CSI. For the ER episode, he wore scrubs the whole time so he wouldn't stand out on the set. During downtime, he shot hoops with George Clooney, as you do, of course. His signature movies include Pulp Fiction, Reservoir Dogs, Inglorious Bastards, and Jackie Brown. Over the years, Quentin has turned down the opportunity to direct some pretty big films. One of the not-so-big ones was Battlefield Earth, based on the book by Scientology founder L. Ron Hubbard. Despite the fact that it was produced by and starred his buddy John Travolta, Quentin wisely passed on that one. Good call. It tanked. On the topic of films not directed by Quentin Tarantino, I'm going to name four movies. Quentin was asked to direct three. Which movie was not offered to him? Was it one, Men in Black, the very first one with Tommy Lee Jones and Will Smith? Two, Eight Mile, starring Eminem as a fictional rapper named Jimmy? Three, Get Shorty, which starred Quentin's buddy John Travolta? Four, Fight Club, starring Once Upon a Time in Hollywood's Brad Pitt. Think about it. We'll give you the answer in just a bit. Who are you? I'm nobody. Everybody is somebody. I am Simba, son of Mufasa. The Lion King is finally in theaters after months of hype and anticipation. People have been calling it a live-action remake, but it really isn't. The movie may look completely realistic, but it's 100% CGI. 
Every landscape and setting in the film was a 360-degree virtual reality space, designed so director Jon Favreau and his crew could see it all from any angle they chose. The stars include Donald Glover as Simba, Beyonce as Nala, Chiwetel Ejiofor as Scar, and Seth Rogen and Billy Eichner as your favorite buddies, Timon and Pumbaa. Other stars, John Oliver, Alfre Woodard, plus James Earl Jones reprises his role of Mufasa. Because, let's be honest, who else could play him? There will also be songs both old and new from Elton John and Tim Rice. There are a ton of Disney remakes on the way, and it's not just because of technology. We decided to dig deeper into why this is such a phenomenon. Dr. James Mason spent three years researching and writing about Disney films and their audience as part of his PhD. He joins us from Leeds, England. Hi, James. Hi, Lana. Thanks for uh, having me on the show. Okay, we've got to talk about what you studied and why. Tell us about it. Um, So, yeah, as you say, I spent three years um, looking into Disney. What I was particularly interested in was why audiences watch Disney movies when um, a lot of people assume that Disney movies are for kids. And so I did a piece of audience research, which involved an online questionnaire that three and a half thousand people filled in to tell me about their opinions of what they think the typical features of a Disney film are, why they enjoy Disney films, why they don't enjoy Disney films. And then I compared that information with uh, data taken from um, about 390 Disney films that had been released up that point. So from Snow White in 1937 up to Star Wars in 2015. Wow. And yeah, so I just compared and contrasted what a Disney film looked like from what had been released to what people thought a Disney film was. Why do you think that we as the audience and Disney are obsessed with remakes? We've got the new technology and people seem to like remakes. So why don't we go ahead and, and remake some of our animated back catalogue in live action or with The Lion King kind of live action? <laughs> or at least a different kind of animated technology. Everything you see exists together in a delicate balance while others search for what they can take. A true king searches for what he can give. There's a cultural currency across generations with these films and across uh, international borders because particularly the animated films can be easily dubbed into another language. And so people around the world can sort of speak this common language of Disney films, even if it's just the Disney songs. Through your studies, what have you learned about what Disney stories, specifically The Lion King, provide for adults? Um, Nostalgia uh, being something that uh, the stories can provide. But there are also other sort of comforts that uh, adults can draw from the films, Um, particularly if you think about The Lion King. Um, you've got uh, the death of Mufasa, and it's such a famous scene. Um, but it, it could also be something that could uh, help adults or children of <laughs> children of any age, um, really, to understand or to cope with or to to talk about grief uh, and the loss of a parent. I think there's a lot to be looking forward to about this new Lion King. I think the, the new voice cast sounds really intriguing. Um, I'm interested to see how they have changed um, some of the more cartoony elements. So I've read a little about what the director, John Favreau, has said about having to adapt things like um, the song, I Just Can't Wait to Be King, because that is so cartoony and stylized in the original. I'm excited to hear what you think of it after you see it. Thank you, yes. I'll uh, stay in touch and let you know. 
Earlier in the podcast, we listed four movies and told you that Quentin Tarantino was asked to direct three of them. Do you know which one he was never offered? Here they are again. One, the original Men in Black. Two, Eight Mile. Three, Get Shorty. And four, Fight Club. Let's see if you got it right. You probably knew it wasn't Get Shorty. It makes sense that he'd be asked to direct John Travolta again just a year after Pulp Fiction. And he was. After he turned it down, Barry Sonnenfeld took the job. The movie scored a few Golden Globe nominations, and John Travolta won for Best Actor. So maybe you guessed Men in Black? Nope. Quinton said no to that one, too. And like Get Shorty, it was also directed by Barry Sonnenfeld. It spawned two sequels, plus the newest one with Chris Hemsworth and Tessa Thompson. Be sure to check out my conversation with the screenwriters of Men in Black International in Episode 5, if you missed it. And it wasn't 8 Mile, which he was asked to direct. That would have been interesting, don't you think? He reluctantly turned it down as he was in the middle of production for Kill Bill Volumes 1 and 2. Yesterday, director Danny Boyle also said no, so Curtis Hansen got the job. So that means the fake answer was Fight Club. It may look like a Quentin Tarantino movie, and it starred his pal Brad Pitt, but the idea of him directing it never came up. It was offered to both Danny Boyle and Peter Jackson, but ended up going to David Fincher. Tarantino told Cineplex magazine that he doesn't know what he'll do next, but one of the options still on the table is the next Star Trek movie. He's been in talks about doing it for a while, and there's already a script. So I guess we'll have to wait and see. Call me old school, but I usually see movies on the regular screen. I save 3D for superhero or animated movies, occasionally hit up IMAX if I really love a movie and want to see it a second time. And, you know, I thought I had all my movie-watching formats covered, and then I saw 4DX. What is that? How could you go beyond 3D? Are we breaking the space-time continuum? And most importantly, would it mess with my popcorn? There is an explanation video on the Cineplex site, but I thought I'd go in and experience 4DX cold. My only preparation? I brought a cardigan. Apparently, if you channel Mr. Rogers, it decreases your fears of the unknown. I don't know. The first thing you need to know is that the theater is smaller and you get to pick your seats in advance. So if you're going to check out a movie in 4DX, just keep that in mind. The seats have a lot of legroom. They're quite comfortable and very high-tech. They move, they vibrate, and also feature wind, fog, water, air, lightning, bubbles, scents, ticklers, and snow. The effects do change to match the movie. Hearing all the stars talk about it in episode 6, I knew Spider-Man Far From Home was the perfect pick for 4DX because of all the action. I was hoping at some point I could find out what Spider-Man smelled like. Thankfully that didn't happen because, let's be honest, with all that action, you've got to assume the Spidey suit would smell like hockey gear you accidentally left in the trunk after practice. But uh, back to 4DX. To prepare you for the experience, there is a Cineplex preview that showcases the chair's abilities. You put on your 3D glasses, you get warmed up for the show with a little movement. In fact, we were clapping when the movie started. The whole room was ready. The vibe was really good. The first few times the chair swooped when Spidey swung, it was a thrill. But I would say it it wasn't super distracting. It's not a roller coaster. I think that's what I was worried about. Because I still wanted to eat my popcorn, not wear it. And honestly, I've spilled popcorn on myself more when I was in regular seating. There's a nice balance in motions, too. It wasn't sensory overload. The chair would swoop along with Spider-Man, yes. But also, when he wiped out, you might feel a little push on your back from the thud. 
And my favorite, when he'd shoot a spider web, a little blast of air would come out of the sides of the headrest lightly across your face. During the scenes with growing clouds and the elementals taking over the sky, a gust of wind would blow or a little mist would float your way. And, you know, if having a little water sprayed near you isn't your thing, you can turn off the water feature by pushing a button on your chair. Personally, I think it really adds to the experience. But hey, you do you. When the characters were in cars or trains, you could feel some vibration on your back to mimic the motion. It was actually really relaxing. It made me wish Spider-Man was more into train travel. The whole 4DX experience, it was so much fun. When the movie ended, the entire theater spontaneously clapped. It really did feel like experiencing a movie on a different level. Right now, 4DX is available at Cineplex Cinema's Young Dundas in Toronto, but more theaters will be added across the country soon. You can also find more at cineplex.com slash theaters slash 4DX. I'm here now with Tanner Zipchin, host of the Cineplex pre-show. Tanner, have you ever gone to one of the 4DX movies? Oh, yes, definitely. Uh, It's a a really cool experience to really enhance whatever you're watching. Yeah, I'm a a big fan now. I want to see Lion King. Let's catch up on what's new in theaters, because in our last episode, we heard from uh, Tom Holland and Jake Gyllenhaal. They talked about Spider-Man Far From Home. That one came out a few weeks ago. But you went to the premiere. What was that like? Yeah, world premiere, L.A., uh, Hollywood Boulevard, in front of the Chinese theater. They closed the street down. This massive Spider-Man loomed over top of the red carpet. All the stars were there. Gyllenhaal, Sam Jackson, Tom Holland. Everyone showed up. Everyone brought their significant others and their famous husbands and wives. And then, of course, because it's just such a cool movie, like, Pete Wentz from Fall Out Boy showed up, a bunch of like other actors, and then seeing the the stars interact with each other, and it was it was and it was a party, like it was such a good movie. And then afterwards, the red carpet turned into a giant party on the street. So nice. it was a uh, it was it was it was really cool. That sounds very fun. Let's talk. This is maybe more terrifying than fun, but um, the Swedish word for midsummer is midsummer. Yeah, mid yeah midsummer. Midsummer, depending. And I'm not Swedish. I'm not really great with the pronunciation, but it does look amazing. And it's a horror movie for people who aren't into horror movies, kind of, right? And for a Swedish movie, it lacked a, a lot of IKEA furniture, which I thought was interesting. Oh, okay. Yeah, anyway. But yeah, it's it definitely a movie for people who I, I think, you know, if you're tired of the jump scare, loud noises type horror movie where it's kind of like the cheap scare where things just go boom and you jump because your you know natural reaction this is one of those movies that'll kind of creep up on you it's mm-hmm. most of the, the the scenes are in the day we're seeing these you know flowers and these beautiful feasts but yet there's something horrible going on at the same time that really kind of sneaks up and and, and will kind of scare you at your core there's also that new Fast and the Furious movie coming out. Why should we be excited about uh, this one? Yeah, this is the, the first spinoff movie with Fast and Furious. We're seeing like, Fast and Furious presents Hobbs and Shaw. So this is the Dwayne Johnson, uh, his character, Jason Statham's character. Now they got to put their differences aside because uh, in the last movie they weren't really getting along. Mm-hmm. And now they got to put it all behind them because Idris Elba is the new villain in town. Amazing. And he's like all, like a, he's like a super soldier. He's all amped up. And it's going to take both of them to take him down together. And, and with this, we're going to see both of their worlds, which they're kind of promoting in the posters and the trailers. So we're going to go to, to London and we're going to fight in, on Statham's territory. And they're also going to go to Hawaii and get a really cool look at uh, Dwayne Johnson's turf as well. And with that new cars, new stunts, it's big, it's crazy. Seed in 40X, maybe. Yeah, I'm excited for it. Thanks so much, Tanner. Can't wait to talk to you again next time. Sounds great. Thank you so much. And that's a wrap. Come back in a few weeks as we take a look at the raunchy comedy Good Boys starring Jacob Tremblay and scary stories to tell in the dark based on Alvin Schwartz's wonderfully grotesque children's book. Eek. 
Be sure to subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. If you have comments or questions about anything you heard on the podcast, let us know at hellomovies at cineplex.com. Hello Movies is brought to you by Cineplex Entertainment. Lori Ulster is the writer of our podcast. Colton Eddy is our producer. Philip Zivkov is our sound designer and mixer. Our series consultant is Jeff Ulster. And our executive producer is Catherine Jun. A special shout out to Tanner Zipchin. I'm Lana Gay. Thanks for listening and see you at the movies. Movies.